Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the pandemic has created major economic problems across the globe, and women in particular have been hit hard by the fallout. In the Americas, this has meant a setback of more than a decade in advances relating to labor force and economic participation. The United Nations estimates that the reduction of regional economic activity will leave about 118 million women and girls in poverty in Latin America and the Caribbean. That's 23 million more than in 2019. As economies across the hemisphere hope to rebound in 2021, countries need to consider and address the unique challenges faced by women. We'll begin today's episode by discussing these issues and more with our special guest, more on that in a minute, but first I want to welcome back our regulars. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hi there, John. Hi, Benjamin. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Hello, Cindy. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Hi, Andrew. Welcome back. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. Hello, Christopher. And I'd like to introduce the newest member of Team America's 360, Slater Family Fellow and Senior Associate for the Brazil Institute, Anya Prusa. Anya, welcome aboard. Thanks for the welcome, John. Well, Anya is the new owner of the roundtable seat previously occupied by Ricardo Zuniga. While we hated to see Ricardo go, we're thrilled that the reason for his departure is his new assignment at the State Department, where he'll now serve as the Biden administration's special envoy for the Northern Triangle. I know I speak for all of us at the center and at America's 360 when we wish Ricardo best of luck with his new position. And what do you think, everybody? We can start the counter now on when he'll be back as a program guest because you never get to leave completely. So speaking of guests, as advertised, we have a very special featured guest today. She is the executive secretary of the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, Alicia Barsena. And she joins our own Cindy Arnson to begin our conversation. So take it away, Cindy. Thanks so much, John. And a special thanks to Alicia for joining us for this really important conversation. Um, in addition to being the executive secretary of ECLOC, or CEPAL, as its acronym is known, she's also um, held high positions at the uh, United Nations in New York, um, Under Secretary General for Management at the UN, and also the Chief of Cabinet and the Deputy Chief of Cabinet for former Secretary General Kofi Annan. So Alicia, welcome again. Let's start out with some of the things that John uh, introduced in his, in his presentation at the beginning. Um, the pandemic has laid bare so many of the region's pre-existing inequalities, but one kind of inequality that hasn't received nearly enough attention is the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on women. Um, especially in terms of unemployment. Um, what can you tell us about the ways that the pandemic has impacted the participation of women in the labor market? Well, first of all, uh, let me thank you so much for this opportunity to meet with a very distinguished 
fellows and with you, Cindy. It's really an honor to be here this afternoon. And of course, let me raise, let me go immediately to the topic in, in question. And that is, uh, you know, the pandemic has made visible many of the region's uh, inequalities, but definitely the severe contraction of the region uh, economically was uh, very much uh, affecting negatively the quantity and quality of women's employment, generating a setback of more than a decade, as you just said. And, and we prepare a policy brief uh, very recently, which is the economic autonomy of women in a sustainable uh, recovery with equality. And we, we highlighted that women's labor force participation has fallen six percentage points. That is from 52% to 46% in 2020. And that has widened the gender gap in labor market participation. More than 40 million women have, have had to leave the, the labor force. So uh, unemployment really, the, the real figures of unemployment show us that, that uh, unemployment rate for women is 12%. But when we go for the, for the women's participation in 2019, I mean, we, instead of 12%, it could be 22%. That is, women have been, I would say, uh, discouraged to look for, for jobs compared with 2019. And that has been basically because have to return, uh, many of them have not returned to search for employment because they have to attend the care demands at home in a context of closure of education establishments and limited care service provision. So women continue to shoulder very highly the burdens of unpaid care work and domestic work in the region. Even before the pandemics, women devoted three times more of time than men did to do this work. So um, so this is for me a very severe, I would say, uh, problem. And the, and the second one is the inequality on salaries. We can see that uh, many women are employed, of course, in, in, in key sectors, you know. Uh, of course, let me put the example of health. Almost 73% of the, of the women are in the health sector. But the problem is that they, in the same type of jobs, they are earning much less than men, you know, at least 21% less than men. So, uh, so this is a problem. Now, and, and of course, many women are participating in, when they were participating in the labor force, and even now, they are joining the, the jobs that are low productivity jobs, and of course, jobs that are very badly paid. And, and I think this is something that we need to look into very carefully. Thanks, Alicia. You mentioned the needs of childcare during the time that schools were were closed. Um, could you talk about the other sectors of the economy where women's participation has been the greatest, and how have those sectors in particular fared uh, during the COVID nineteen pandemic? Sure. I think that one of the most uh, affected sectors has been, of course the service sector, the retail sector. And we also made an analysis because one of the things we have tried in ECLAC is to, to break the, the statistic silence and, and to make sure that we understand which sectors are the one most affected. And I can tell you that tourism, for example, was a, a very high risk sector characterized by high rates of informality, low pay and low skills. And we can say that the proportion of women uh, attached to this sector is 61.5% versus men, that is around 25%. So, I mean, women are basically uh, connected to sectors that are very, very, uh, I would say, 
very fragile. Tourism is one. And then, of course, the paid domestic work. We, we were talking about the unpaid domestic work, but the, um, but the paid on this uh, domestic work was also very affected by this pandemic, education and health. I think these are concrete sectors that have been very, very much affected and, uh, and uh, fallen down in many, in many ways. So, um, and, and I would say that maybe, it will, Cindy, we're going to talk about this, but one of the major obstacles for women today, incredible, is the um, internet access. I mean, more than 40 million uh, households do not have internet access. And this has been aggravated by the fact that children are now at, at home. And so we are talking about a, a very serious gap in the future where many children will not have the possibility to do teleeducation. They, they don't have that possibility because of this lack of connectivity. Related to that, Alicia, is the lack, is the digital divide also a factor um, in women's inequality uh, with respect to telework or other kinds of things? Obviously, it has a huge impact on the education sector. What, what other ways does the digital divide affect women um, in the region? Well, basically, I mean, the digital divide is affecting in, in many fronts. One is precisely because children are going back to ho home and they don't have the connectivity to connect to teleeducation. Some women are the ones who have to go out and look for the, for the I would say, with the elements to try to, to help their children as much as they can. But the second issue is that women do not have connectivity to do. Many of them were already connected to small and medium-sized enterprises. And now, and many of these enterprises, as you know, has grown so much in terms of tele, teleworking and women are totally left behind on this, on this regard. And basically, I mean, they are left behind also because they don't have their own income, you know. There are many women that do not have an income of their own, and and the, and the percentage of the income that is needed for women for, for any household to to be connected to to internet is very high. I mean, in, in our region, the connectivity, inclusive digital transformation, requires at least I would say I mean it's in, in the least uh, in the least cost it costs around eleven point nine percent of the of the income. In other households, it costs around 18%, while in, in the OECD countries, it is about 2.5% of, of your income. So if we have women that do not have their own income, we have internet access services that are very costly that they have to take from their own income. So that is something that is hurting this region quite a lot. And, and of course, I mean, I think that uh, they cannot do teleworking and they cannot do teleeducation. Both things are affecting women quite a lot. Yeah, and there's there's also been, you know, according to a lot of the figures from the United Nations, from the Inter-American Development Bank, um, an enormous spike in domestic violence uh, directed at women, also directed at children during these lockdowns. Um, is this something that Sepal has paid attention to? And what can you tell us about uh, gender-based violence, which is a, a strong focus of the Wilson Center? I don't know. Absolutely. I think we call these the pandemics in the dark. You know, this is the dark pandemics, the one that the silent pa pandemics in a way where you can see that violence, of course, has, has been increasing in a very large proportion. And basically it has increased in the in the, I, the households. I mean, unfortunately, 
the, the feminicides uh, have been grown in a way that you can't imagine. And, uh, and in this region, of course, we are, uh, these quarantines and lockdowns have led to a huge spike in domestic uh, violence. And, and yes, we are following up. Let me just give you a, the official data that we have from 18 Latin American and six Caribbean countries. There were at least 4,640 cases of feminicide or femicide, uh, depending on how the crime is classified, because that's in the other problem in many countries. Feminicide is not classified as, as, as it is in other countries. So, but in, indeed, the shadow pandemics, these pandemics in the dark or the shadow pandemics, we have an average of one in three women in the region that have been subject to physical, psychological, or sexual violence inflicted by a former or a current partner. And and as I said before, we do we do. I mean, we have a, a, a gender equality observatory in which we report these cases because the problem is that women normally don't want to report these cases. So I have to say that many governments of the region are taking actions on this matter. More than 90 measures are being, uh, being put forward to, to, to tackle violence against women during this period. But indeed, I think it's insufficient. Uh, I mean, the... Uh, there is really a, a real problem. I think it has increased in a way that is incredible. And basically, I think this is something that we really need to, to look into the future. Thanks, Alicia. And perhaps on a brighter note, as countries look to recover from the pandemic, how can, can you give us, you know, maybe one or two or at the most three recommendations that Paul has put forward for ways that these gender inequalities can be overcome, both to get back to the place where things were, but also really to move towards more uh, complete gender inclusion and equality? Well, the first of it, is, I mean, of course, we have put some uh, ideas forward. And the first of it is we need to move towards a care economy and a care society. I mean, this pandemic showed us that society needs to be cared. It needs care. In, in what sense? In the, in, the, in the area of health, we need to take care of the planet. We need to take care of our elders, of our children. So what we need is to really understand that today what we need is a care society that is really focused more on the, on the caring of people. And it cannot be in the shoulders of women, the care society. So we need to move into a care economy that is to put value in the in the in the in the jobs that women are uh, are are performing. Let's say, and we need to invest in the care economy, and that means that we need to invest in childcare. We need to invest in elder in, in elder care, either daycare or or even uh, you know these uh, these houses uh, houses of elders that should be established, and and we need to to liberate women from the from these uh, terrible tasks that has been inflicted on them. And uh, so that's number one. We need to invest on the care economy to build a care society, by the way. The second one is we are proposing a digital uh, basket, a basic digital basket, which will cost around 1% of GDP. And we are calculating right now for three countries, by the way, Costa Rica, Uruguay, and Chile, how much would a, a, a digital basket cost to really uh, to really close the gap of the of the digital inclusion? In the region, is forty million 
households. In Chile, it's one million households without uh, internet connectivity. So we are we are talking to the Minister of Women, Communications and Equality to see what do we need to close this gap, which is extremely important and it's not that big deal in terms of fiscal effort. And the third one is that we are proposing emergency basic income for these 14 million women that have to leave the labor force. And we're talking about an emergency basic income of $120 a month, which is equivalent to one line of poverty. So we believe that this is feasible. These three things are feasible, are possible. So these are at least the, the three things that we are suggesting. And in the long run, of course, we are suggesting uh, to include the, the, the care as a right, and of course, to incorporate in the fiscal policies this type of costing for the future. Alicia, thank you so much. I think we have run out of time for this uh, this part of the interview, but so appreciate your being with us, so appreciate your leadership and all of the tremendous work that CEPAL does in not only highlighting the problems, but opening a path uh, towards a solution. So thank you again for being with us. A great pleasure, Cindy. And whenever, I, I really appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Cindy. Thank you, Alicia. And when we return, our roundtable picks up where Cindy and Alicia left off. You're listening to America's 360. Welcome back to America's 360. Uh, Cindy, terrific interview with Alicia. Thank you for setting up our discussion you know, often, uh, Chris, I want to come to you, Chris Sands. Uh, often when we have these discussions on America's 360, Canada can be a bit of an outlier, not just geographically, but even in some of the details of, of what the country's dealing with versus the rest of the region. Unfortunately, this is a case where uh, a bad situation for women got worse uh, across the hemisphere. Uh, more than 97,000 women have fallen not just into unemployment in Canada, but in into long-term unemployment since February, and that's 10 times more the, the number for male workers during that same time frame. Give us a sense of what's happening. Well, you know, this is a big issue in Canada, and it's one that's very much on people's minds. And I'm just going to add to your pile of statistics, because in some ways what you're seeing in Canada is reflected a little bit in the U.S. as well. We've, we think that because of COVID-19, one and a half million women have lost jobs permanently. And while for, they re, women represent 45% of the hours lost to the economy in the last year, they're only expected, based on an employer survey across Canada, to represent about 35% of the recovery. So there'll be a long-term loss of 10% uh, of women's hourly work uh, that people are expecting to be permanent. More worrisome, and I think this is something that uh, that Madame Barsena kind of raised, but I think it's really important in, in a country like Canada, which has an aging population, women with toddlers and school-aged children uh, lost 12% of, of their income and their time available to work because of trying to keep an eye on the kids. Um, that number is double the case of men uh, with toddlers or school-aged children at home. So this is impacting women quite a bit in Canada. And it raises a larger question. When you have a pandemic that affects countries like Canada, as well as countries that are developing, then the question is, 
Who's going to find the money? Who is going to look beyond their own problems to help others? And I have high hopes for Canada, but the fact that they have such a serious domestic impact uh, with women in Canada is going to make it harder, harder to look beyond those problems to try to address global problems, as as Ambassador Bersena suggested. Thanks, Chris. Anya, speaking of a bad situation getting worse, um, here's another statistic. 14 of the 25 countries with the highest rates of femicide are located in Latin America and the Caribbean. And as Cindy and and Alicia and now Chris have discussed that the stresses on home life uh, have a ripple effect that goes beyond economics. You've been doing a lot of work on this. Can you can you broaden the 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 context for us and tell us what you've been saying? Of course. So we've seen across Latin America that, you know, the number of femicides, which is the killing of a woman because of her gender. So the number of femicides have gone up uh, during this pandemic, but femicide is only the tip of the iceberg, right? So we're also seeing that reports of violence, um, physical and sexual violence have gone up, calls to hotlines have gone up. And worryingly, um, we're also seeing that women's access to justice and to support services following these incidents has gone down. Right, because police stations have more limited hours. Um, you know, healthcare services are, are overwhelmed with COVID, and so they're perhaps less likely to be able to help women who need it. Um, and so, what we've seen, in fact, is is this exacerbation of gender-based violence, which was already quite severe in the region. Thanks, Benjamin. You know, a, a part of what we've discussed is not just the, the negative impacts, but also. What where we were before, what good news was happening, and how we may have regressed. But you have some good news to share about Argentina. Is that correct? I do. I mean, I think Argentina has been vulnerable to a lot of the negative trends that that Anya has pointed out, and that Alicia also mentioned. Um, particularly the disproportionate burden on on women to handle domestic responsibilities and childcare, um, affecting their presence in the labor market negatively. But I do think it's worth mentioning that in Argentina, I think it's been actually a pretty positive last year overall for the recognition of women's issues. There's a, a movement, a feminist movement known as Ni Una Menos, um, Not One Fewer, um, that started out as opposing domestic violence and has become a real regional juggernaut. Its green scarf is this powerful symbol now throughout Latin America. It was promoting reproductive rights. And, and last December, Argentina by far became the biggest country in Latin America to legalize abortion. There's a new ministry in Argentina at the cabinet level. It's the Ministry of Women, Gender, and Diversity. And Argentina has also come a, a really long way in gender parity in its Congress. It's now, I think, one of the leaders globally in that area. More than 40% of the lower house, more than 40% of the Senate in Argentina are, seats are now held by women. So I do think among a lot of these dark clouds, Argentina has been really leading on some of these gender issues. Andrew, there was a, a, a moment ago where AMLO, AMLO pres the president, uh, mm -hmm. said he, he sort of denied that women were being adversely affected. Uh, where is Mexico at this point? Um, you know, I was listening to Benjamin and thinking, OK, what, what's positive or negative? Um, Mexico has has gender parity in, in the cabinet and, and some rules governing uh, gender and political candidates. But I, I think what we all know or, or we should appreciate is that it's not enough to just sort of have a quota or, or numerical. It's what happens, how, the, how people are treated and, and what impact they can have on, on policy. Um, AMLO, uh, in the face of the, the Women's March on, on March 8th, uh, barricaded the National Palace ostensibly to protect women. Uh, I'm not sure very many people think that women, that the women were posing the threat. Um, and he's also tied the women's movement to his opposition to what he calls neoliberal 
ideas in opposition and has essentially suggested that the women's movement is sort of a foreign import uh, designed to undermine his political uh, agenda. So I'd say on, on this issue, he, he's definitely on the wrong side. It'll be interesting to see whether that plays out in Mexico's upcoming uh, midterm elections on June 6, whether women do actually vote based on those issues. So, Cindy, having had the opportunity to interview Alicia and now to hear from all of your colleagues on the roundtable, I'm wondering what additional thoughts you want to add to the discussion. Sure. Well, again, I think there's another bright spot to include, which is Chile, uh, which is supposed to have elections on uh, April 11th for a new uh, assembly, a constituent assembly to write a new constitution. This is something that came out of the protests um, at the end of 2019 before covid um, those elections are probably going to be postponed, but the bright spot is that women will have 50% of the seats in that um, assembly to come up with a new constitution. So I think there are ways that women's participation is being formally expanded in the institutions of government in Chile as well as in, um, in Argentina. And, and we have to you know, take heart from those, those positive examples as well. Is there any silver lining here in the sense that sometimes when problems become more acutely clear and undeniable, that action follows? I think certainly. Um, we've seen with gender-based violence specifically that because there has been such a surge in the number of cases, that there has also been a huge outcry among civil society, among people. And governments have felt, I think, across the region, with a few exceptions, that they do need to take action. So in Brazil, for example, we've seen, you know, new innovative, innovative technologies um, allowing for reporting of cases via WhatsApp, for example, um, or a new online portal that actually allows women to take photographs, um, evidence, right, in their own cases so they don't physically have to go to the police station and perhaps risk um, confronting uh, COVID-19. And, and so I do think that there is this drive um, because of, of the focus on women and the disproportionate impact that women have faced. Andrew Rudman. Let me I'll pick up on, on something Anya was saying, that the Minister of Finance in Mexico just late last week uh, commented that post-pandemic we need to, or Mexico needs to try to address inequality and, and try to recover some of what's happened. And he particularly pointed out that one of the challenges, of course, that women face is insecurity not being feeling like it's safe for them to go to work. And so I think for the Minister of Finance to make that connection and that point and be thinking post-pandemic, how do we address it? That, that's certainly a, an important point. Benjamin. I think another you know, potential silver lining is that a lot of the contractions in the sectors where women are disproportionately represented were artificial, right? They're based on social distancing that, that we all hope will not be a permanent feature of economic life in Latin America. So which is to say when travel resumes, when people can go to restaurants, when people feel comfortable having domestic employees back in their homes and everyone is vaccinated, I think you will see, you know, hopefully less of this so-called permanent scarring that we've heard a lot about in these sectors. And you will see some of these women re-entering their workforce. At least, you know, that's the expectation. And I very much hope that that's what occurs. Chris um, you know, one of the things I think this puts on on a country like Canada is real pressure to step up to the rhetoric. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau came in in 2015, personally declaring himself a feminist and calling for a feminist foreign policy that was meant to affect development assistance, diplomacy, and even trade negotiations. Um, it was a broad and ambitious agenda that raised expectations. And 
Bess Momani, who uh, is analyzes these issues in Canada, she recently said that Trudeau's foreign policy remains undeclared. It's it's like he hasn't really followed through on the commitment. It's always going to be hard for a country like Canada to prioritize, prioritize everything, but this really calls on the prime minister and on the Canadian people to step into this breach. There's going to be more demand for Canada than Canada can supply. But this is also an opportunity to make good on a promise that's been neglected too long and was so central to the prime minister's uh, political persona. Cindy. Yeah, I I really remain uh, curious and and semi-optimistic about what's going to happen in the health sector and in the education sector as countries emerge from the pandemic. These are places where women constitute 70 percent or more of the labor force. And yet they are two sectors that have been, you know, the most impacted uh, by by COVID-19. And I just can't imagine that it's going to be business as usual. And I believe that, you know, women teachers going back into the classroom, health care workers, uh, you know, post-pandemic are going to accept the status quo ante. Um, and, and I think there's a potential for a great deal of change led by women who are dominant in those sectors. Cindy, you mentioned that as over 73% of, of health sector employees are women who also happen to make 23.7% less than their male counterparts. So is that the type of change you're talking about, that some of these systemic changes or, or situations that existed before the pandemic might now be addressed? I would remain hopeful um, that people who have been on the front lines, who have been uh, dealing with these um, ICUs that are at capacity and the all of the hospitals and whatever are going to say, hey, look, you know, this isn't going to cut it anymore. Um, the danger, of course, is that people leave the healthcare sector for other kinds of jobs and that there's a constant need to be retraining and, and, and to train new uh, people to enter uh, the sector. But I would suspect that people entering also are not going to accept um, these levels of inequality. Um, and will demand, you know, better working conditions. Benjamin mentioned good news from Argentina, and, and Chris at least mentioned promises from, from Prime Minister Trudeau. And and Chile is also, Cindy, you brought up, uh, uh, both sides of the coin. Are there other countries worth noting that maybe we can look to for some leadership? Or uh, what's the other side of that coin? Are there countries that really lag behind that require some significant attention? When you're looking at Brazil, and you're looking at any sort of economic recovery for women and, and a return to women in the workforce, the first thing that needs to happen is, is you need to tackle the pandemic, right, which is causing a lot of these challenges. And, and in Brazil, it seems unlikely that that's going to happen anytime in the near future. And so women are going to continue to face these challenges, right? Um, their children are not going to be in school, and so they're going to have to be at home taking care of them. Um, they're you know, not going to be able to return to the workforce. Um, and so for Brazil, and until the pandemic itself is tackled, we're not going to see much progress in terms of women's uh, return to the workforce. Benjamin. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, fundamentally, the pandemic will be an obstacle to, to improvements in almost any of these areas. I do think, though, what we're seeing is that women's movements throughout Latin America are communicating with one another, are motivating one another, and are becoming, I think, better organized and more prominent in a way that gives me some hope. I think, Andrew, you know, you talked a lot about the bad posture of the AMLO administration towards women's issues, but he's had to repeatedly confront the demands of 
of organized women's groups, I think in a way that's quite new. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, what had been an Argentine phenomenon, this Ni Una Menos movement, quickly, you know, crossed over the Andes into Chile and has become, you know, a broader movement throughout Latin America. So I, I am encouraged by the mobilization of women's groups, even under these really exceptionally difficult circumstances over the last year. Beyond women advocating for themselves, do we see any shift in politics in the broader population? I mean, you know, you look at the whole number of women who are the leaders in the health sector in terms of sheer numbers. These are the heroes of the pandemic. Is public attention or public uh, uh, opinion beginning to shift? If, if I can jump in, John, um, at least at least in Canada, one of the things that that we've seen is a, a sort of change in the debate because what COVID revealed was that there were ways sectors like healthcare and education where women were a larger proportion of the workforce. And when COVID brought the economy down, they were disproportionately affected, recognizing still, even in a country like Canada, the disproportionate role of women with young children for their education, even if it's on an iPad down the hall. I think those disparate impacts are the kinds of things that change minds. What we want to avoid and what we've seen only in a few places is the idea that, well, we should put women first on recovery and that men don't have problems. We have enough divisions in society. It's not about women first, men second, or anything like that. It's about coming back together, but recognizing that there are some specific problems that we have put uh, in women's hands, that, they're, that they are disproportionately affected because of the roles they play in society that we undervalue. So I think as long as we're able to maintain some of that unity of recognizing we don't recover until we all recover, we have the potential for this to be a very positive social change. But it's going to take thinking through some of those those impacts and recognizing that we, while we all have work to do, we all have something to gain by working on them together. Looking ahead to re recovery, you know, let's be optimistic here. Uh, I'm going to ask each of you for a closing thought because we're running out of time. And, and this is about what we have was a chronic situation where there was inequality, economic inequality, and perhaps inequality that goes beyond economics. And then that was exacerbated by something as significant as a global pandemic. We're talking about something historic. But, but you know, as we begin to reset and figure out what life looks like post-pandemic, where do you turn your attention if you're trying to address the problems that were already in place beforehand? If you're, if you're prioritizing for countries, for world leaders, where do you start? Where do you gain the most traction? And, and since you weren't prepared for this question, I'm going to randomly choose the first victim who has to gather his or her thoughts, and that is Andrew Rudman. Thanks. Thanks, John. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I, as we've talked about before, I, I think if there's any silver linings in this pandemic, it's a greater awareness of some of the challenges like adequate spending in healthcare and addressing the digital divide and spending on education. I know for every country in the region, spending more money is never uh, never the most positive solution or the most realistic one. But I think there's going to have to be a change in the way resources are allocated. Some of that ideally comes from elimination of corruption and more efficient spending. But I think what we have to learn from the pandemic is how inadequately prepared we all were for this kind of event so that it so that the next pandemic won't have quite the same impact. Yeah, I think a good point. I think ultimately what we're talking about here is building resilience so that whatever comes down the pike, we're not caught in such a, a vulnerable situation. Benjamin. 
I think the gender wage gap is probably a good place to start. Alicia, our special guest today, talked about trying to bring more data to bear on these challenges. And I think that's one we've been looking at lately. The data is very clear. There's no justification for it at all. It's the private sector's responsibility with government drawing attention and enforcing um, rules of fairness. And I think as we think about women in the workforce and now have a greater understanding of where women have been disadvantaged and how that's been worsened by the pandemic, let's fix the gender wage gap quickly in this recovery period. Thanks. Anya Prusa. I think we need to remember that that women's issues impact all elements of, of society and of the economy, right? So if you're talking about healthcare policy, you also need to think about how does that impact women? If you're talking about education policy, gender needs to be a part of that conversation. Same thing with entrepreneurship or, or technology and innovation. So making sure that you have, you know, first of all, women at the table when you're discussing some of these policies, um, but also making sure that, that you're not siloing gender into this own separate special category. Well, it's a bit of a nerdy comment, but one of the things that we've seen in this unplanned social experiment was Canada, the United States decided to restrict the border to essential traffic only. So goods trade continued and kept the economy afloat. What that missed is that women are most often employed in service sector and the service sector is not well captured in trade. So while, you know, we're still able to make cars together, we were really losing out uh, opportunity for the Canadian economy in the areas where women are most employed. So education, healthcare, but also entrepreneurship, as Anya was saying, and technologies, many of the things that they simply couldn't do because of the way we shut the border. So if nothing else, we should have a more feminist approach to border closures in the future, or at least a more balanced one. Cindy, I was going to say you have, Oh, and, you know, when you label a concept nerdy, a con comment nerdy, who are we to disagree? Your, your findings. Cindy, I, I don't know. I was going to say you have the advantage of going last, but it could be a disadvantage after our colleagues have come up with so many brilliant ideas. There are great ideas. I would just throw in there, you know, the critical importance of this digital divide, um, the way that uh, education in particular has been impacted, but the way women have been impacted Given the amount of employment in the service sector, the inability to um, to to work from home, um, the inability to telework due to poor connectivity, which is very high in the Caribbean and Central America, but even in countries like Mexico, um, even Uruguay, you know, the, the percentage is, is unacceptable. So, um, you know, making sure that people have some level of access to internet, as Alicia was saying, the 40 million households in the region that don't have access to internet, I mean, that is just shocking. Um, in a day when we feel like a cell phone or a mobile phone is uh, like a piece of one's own body. Um, and, and that is just a, a critical crying need that would definitely improve lives for everybody, but especially for women. Well, well thank you, Cindy, and thanks to everyone. Anya, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, as always, we learn a lot from you and look forward to doing so in future episodes. A special shout out and thanks to our special guest, Alicia Barsana. Uh, so that's it for this edition of America's 360. We'll see you again soon. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and the program, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. 
And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.